Let me read for you Psalm 69. Save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire, and there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and a flood overflows me. I am weary with my crying. My throat is parched. My eyes fail while I wait for my God. Those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Those who would destroy me are powerful, being wrongfully my enemies. What I did not steal, I then have to restore. O God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. May those who wait for you not be ashamed through me, O Lord God of hosts. May those who seek you not be dishonored through me, O God of Israel. Because for your sake I have borne reproach, dishonor has covered my face. I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. Those who sit at the gate talk about me. I am the song of drunkards. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time. O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. Deliver me from the mire and do not let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. May the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep swallow me up, nor the pit shut its mouth on me. Answer me, O Lord, for your loving kindness is good. According to the greatness of your compassion, turn to me and do not hide your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Answer me quickly. O draw near to my soul and redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. All my adversaries are before you. Reproach has broken my heart and I am so sick. And I looked for sympathy, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They also gave me gall for my food, and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. May their table before them become a snare, and when they are in peace may it become a trap. May their eyes grow dim so they cannot see, and make their loins shake continually. Pour out your indignation on them, and may your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be desolate, may none dwell in their tents, for they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. And they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. Add iniquity to their iniquity, and make they, and may they not come into your righteousness. May they be blotted out from the book of life, and may they not be recorded with the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. I will praise the name of the Lord with song and magnify him with thanksgiving. And it will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. The humble have seen it and are glad. You who seek God, let your heart revive. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. Let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah, that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of his servants will inherit it. And those who love his name will dwell in it. This is God's word. 
And then I'm going to be reading as well from Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 33. That's found on page 685, the Pew Bibles. And in honor of our Lord Jesus Christ, if you are able, would you stand for the reading of the Gospel, please? Matthew 6, 25 to 33. For this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, that they do not sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet their heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. This is God's Word. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. I just read Psalm 69, and for the next uh, few weeks we'll be looking actually at poetry in the Old Testament. Now there's quite a bit of of poetic material, certainly the Psalms, the largest single book in the Bible, and really the five poetic books in the Old Testament, Job and Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and the Song of Solomon, make up about one-fifth of the entire Old Testament. Really, even beyond those, though, we find poetry in nearly every book in the Old Testament in one form or another. Now, poetry doesn't teach uh, facts of instruction like in one of Paul's letters or in one of Jesus' sermons. Instead, poetry teaches us more commonly through the experience of observation. When, in fact, we observe God at work in the world and in people's lives. And as a result, we're able to become part of the experience and we gain what the participants gain, which is wisdom for living. And certainly much of the poetic in the Old Testament is in fact classified as the wisdom literature of the Bible. Now, my journey into the poetic really began about a dozen years or so. I was trying to finish a a master's degree at Wheaton College and I sought out a professor and requested that he let me do an independent study in Old Testament poetry. Now, admittedly, I came up with the idea thinking that this would be an easy elective, something to finish things up. I wouldn't have to work too hard. I could schmooze with the professor a little bit and and not have to do a whole lot of work as I'm trying to finish things up. Instead, what happened as I worked through poetry in the Old Testament is that I got emotional. Because that's where people get emotional, is in the poetic. It's where God speaks to His people and gives them the deepest truths and connects them with the soul of humankind. For some reason, God in His infinite wisdom decided to curse 
all of humankind in the book of Genesis, and he did it in a poem. And at the same time, he decided to tell humanity of the greatest blessing, the promise of redemption, and he does it in a poem. Poetry speaks to the deepest needs of humanity and connects with all my emotions. It's the only time we see the biblical writers actually be emotionally honest with God. And they say some things that you and I probably don't usually say on a regular basis to God. Because we tend to be more restrained when we talk to God. In the military, a person is restrained by their rank or by their position when addressing someone who is superior to them. When you're with those of superior rank, you're very respectful to them. And, and really, in not only what you say, but in also how you act in their presence. But there can be moments when someone who is above you can permit you to speak freely. At which time, you're still keeping in mind who they are. You're allowed to express yourself and allowed to express how you feel and what's really going on in you or with a situation. Well, Old Testament poetry, and in particular the Psalms, seems to be when God says, you can speak freely to me and express your deepest emotions to me without any fear. And so, through the process of exploring Old Testament poetry that began many years ago, I have perhaps learned greater theological truths in other scriptures. I have certainly learned deeper truths, though, that actually touch the soul in Old Testament poetry and and really change how you think about life and how you respond to life's problems. And so, this morning, we're turning to the pages of Psalm 69, And it's not a short psalm, but it seemed important to read it all so we can gain a glimpse into the life of the psalmist. Now, where does Psalm 69 fit into the greater volume of the book of Psalms? Well, it's part of a larger section of lament psalms that make up really more than half the book of Psalms. And here specifically, this psalm is part of what's referred to as individual lament psalms, of which there are 29 in the psalms. And if you do the math, that's roughly 20% of all the psalms are people complaining to God. Where a speaker, right, the psalmist, sets forth before God complaints about their adverse situations and their suffering, along with strong petitions for divine action and for relief from their distress. In other words, the psalmist is suffering in some manner and wants to know where God is what God is doing to help, where he can find relief. The psalmist then, particularly in Psalm 69, the psalmist seeks to reconcile suffering and the pain of life with faith in God to save and rescue his people. And that's where the psalmist begins. If you look at Psalm 69 with me in the first four verses, it begins with a cry to God because of his condition and his status among his enemies. Begin, save me, O God, for the waters have threatened my life. I have sunk in deep mire. There is no foothold for me. I'm weary with my crying. Now, we're unaware of the situation that the writer is in, in particular. Or even the time frame, really, that the writer writes. Or, or what condition he's suffering from, in particular. 
We only know that he suffers. The superscript of Psalm 69, right before the, you see the wording of the psalm, attributes the psalm to David. But we're unable to really to place this psalm historically. Now, the author uses vast metaphorical language in describing his life at this point, in that his adversity is really like deep waters that are covering him up. He's about to drown metaphorically. It's like a terrible marsh mud that's pulling him down as he describes it. And he feels like he may go under at any moment. He can't keep this up any longer. And this is how he describes the severity of his problems. He's in distress. There is a panic in his voice. He's cried out and called out to God so much that he's weary. And his throat is really dry. It's parched. He's been yelling at God, where are you? All the while, he's waiting for God to do something on his behalf. In verse 4, we gain a glimpse of either his condition or the result of his condition, and that he's hated, and people want to destroy him unjustly. And even Jesus, you know, quotes from this exact verse in John fifteen twenty-five. And so the psalmist at this point cries out in verses 5 to 9, and he begins with, Oh God, it is you who knows my folly, and my wrongs are not hidden from you. Because God knows the psalmist's ways, God knows the writer has acted foolishly in many times, yet he declares his innocence before God of these accusations. And in verse 6, he calls out on behalf of all who seek the Lord, really, that they would not portray God unfavorably through what he suffers. He even calls out to God in verse 6 using three different names for God. He says, uh, calls him, O Lord, he calls him the God of hosts, he calls him the God of Israel. One refers to the fact that he's Lord of the universe, one that he's God Almighty, and the third that he's the great king, in a sense, who rules the earth. And he expects God, by using these different names for him, to act on his behalf and solve his problems in a manner that would embody those names attributed to him. Because he says in here in verse 7, he's come under scrutiny. And he's been defamed because of God. And for God's name's sake, we learn his family has disowned him because he's had such single-mindedness in relationship to God and to the worship of him. You know, verse 9, that's what that describes. That's also quoted by Jesus in John 2.17. Zeal for your house will consume me. And though as verse 10 to 13 describe how he has fasted and prayed, people have simply made fun of him. Look at verse 10. When I wept in my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. I've tried fasting. I've tried weeping. It doesn't work. My problems are still here. Verse 11. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. The psalmist's problems have gone so far that he has become now the object of jokes in the community. He's become the subject of drunkards' songs. It's a play on words going on here because the drunkards now have written their own poems, their own psalms about him, and they mock him and his situation in life. That's what's going on in the background. And then in verse 13, he really brings you into the foreground. 
Look at verse 3. But as for me, verse 13, but as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, at an acceptable time, O God, in the greatness of your loving kindness, answer me with your saving truth. He puts himself in the foreground and says that he's remained in prayer, that God himself, the Lord God Almighty, when it's time, will deliver him. Because he's a God who shows loving kindness to his people. That's a special word that describes only how God can care for his people. Answer me, Lord, with your true salvation, the psalmist says. Give me salvation. And then he proceeds to remind God again of his suffering in verses 14 to 17 and the length of his condition. He says, deliver me from the mire. Don't let me sink. May I be delivered from my foes and from the deep waters. The psalmist recounts his pain again and calls for God to rescue him because he's compassionate. He's a servant of God. He's in distress. Where is God in the midst of it? And he calls for God to be near to him, to provide comfort for him. Look at verse 18 to 20. Draw near to my soul. Redeem it. Ransom me because of my enemies. He looks for redemption, for ransom, for rescue. He wants God to be near to his soul. He suffers shame, reproach, dishonor. He has no sympathy with anyone. There is no comfort for him. His enemies treat him without regard. They want to destroy him. If you look at verse 21 to 25, his treatment by his enemies and what uh, he wants to happen to them, he makes clear there. Verse 21 indicates his enemies only sought really to make his condition worse. They gave him gall for food and vinegar to drink. You know, surprisingly, Jesus also quotes that. That's quoted right in the New Testament in relationship to Christ. And so the writer seeks divine revenge against his enemies. Just as he's had to suffer at God's hand. He wants to be rescued from his situation, but he also wants those against him to fall. And to fall really hard. He desires them to be caught in their schemes. He wants them to go blind just as he's been blind with his tears. He wants them to lose their strength just as he's exhausted emotionally. He wants them to have no children. He doesn't want anybody to dwell in their tents. That's what the text says in verse 25. May they have no children. May the generation just end with those wicked people. All because they have gotten involved with the suffering of one of God's people. Continues in verse 26 to 29, really on that same vein. For they have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten. They persecute someone who suffers at God's hand. That's what verse 26 says. The writer understands here that God is behind his suffering. They have persecuted him whom you yourself have smitten, and they tell of the pain of those whom you have wounded. But the writer is bothered by how they mock what God is doing in the writer's life. The psalmist understands that pain comes from God. And so he calls for his enemies to not be a part of God's salvation. He wants God to blot out their names from the book of life. And then he asserts himself again and calls for salvation and a rescue from his peril in verse 29. He says, but I am afflicted and in pain. May your salvation, O God, set me securely on high. 
this poem here in the Psalms to this point has been expressing the heart of the one who endures the greatest difficulty as he is waiting for God to rescue him and to save him from what God has caused him to endure. But the power of the psalm really is further accentuated in the extensive use of parallelism that the psalmist employs. Now it's hard to see a little bit in the English, but I want to point out a few examples as best I can. He uses a parallelism to have his poem echo his message. What do I mean? Well, if we compare verses 1 to 13 with verses 14 to 29, here's a few examples. In verse 1, he says, save me. For the waters have threatened my life. In verse 14, he says, deliver me from the mire and don't let me sink. In verse 2, he says, I've come into deep waters and a flood overflows me. In verse 15, he says, may the flood of water not overflow me, nor the deep waters swallow me. In verse 7, he says, because of your sake, I've borne reproach. In verse 20, he says, reproach has broken my heart. In verse 13, but as for me, answer me with your saving truth. In verse 29, but I am afflicted. May your salvation set me free. The parallelism in Hebrew poetry accentuates the quality of the writer's message as he expresses his heart before the Lord. It tells the same story twice. But what it shows is that it's not a haphazard psalm to God of some careless thoughts or accusations that were not thought out, the psalmist is not on a rant here. He's not on a tirade. The construction of this psalm shows the writer's pain, really, in a manifold way. So it's not just that his words are piercing, and they are. But more than that, his method, his writing style in this poem expresses the strenuous nature of his situation. He suffers and he writes it out in such a way that his words reach past merely hearing his suffering and it takes you to the point where you can feel his suffering. And that's the poetic in the Bible. We can participate then with the psalmist with the writers, in not only hearing their life's pains, but then we can express our life's pains using their words. And it's just not something we do with our minds in a cognitive sort of way, but it's something that we do with our hearts, with our souls, as we become engaged with God, speaking freely to Him in a painful conversation at times about how our lives are going. And your feelings then are allowed to be expressed as they are before God. God, my life stinks at times. And it's your fault. What are you going to do about it, God? Honesty with God. That's what we find in the poetic. The writer here is very forceful. He's in pain, and you can feel it. And his emotion is evident. He wants vindication. He wants justification for all that's befallen him. He wants to see his enemies suffer just as he's suffering. And he tells it all to God. The psalmist wants to know what to do with his painful life in the presence of mockers and a God who has not come to rescue him, to save him, to vindicate him. The psalmist is asking the question, what do you do when God's people suffer? Two weeks ago, I went and preached at my aunt's funeral back in Chicago. She passed away as a result of some complications. 
having to do with Parkinson's. And if it would call me over the last number of months and years, sometimes she would just be trapped sitting at her table, her mind no longer able to tell her feet to do anything, or trapped in her hallway, just standing there for hours, can't move. Where is God in the midst of the pain of life? He afflicts people, as the psalmist says. Why doesn't he rescue them? It's more than a stirring question that comes up in the poetic. It's what you want answered, though, when the people you love fall sick and become ill. When God's people, you see them suffering in the world. When Christians are afflicted. When believers are the receivers of injustice. Where is God? When God's chosen ones are crushed. Where do we find resolution? Not only for our minds, but for our hearts. The soul of our beings. When we suffer and when we watch others suffer. How does the psalmist resolve? His heart, after unloading all of this on God. What does the psalmist do? Well, look with me in the last few verses. Verses 30 to 33 here. He says, I will praise the name of the God with song and magnify Him with thanksgiving. The psalmist turns to praise and magnify Him. Which is something that he knows means more than sacrifice. That's what verse 31 says, right? It will please the Lord better than an ox or a young bull with horns and hoofs. Cutting stuff up isn't going to please God. The psalmist knows that. But the psalmist does know also that God himself does hear and listen to his people who suffer. That's what the psalmist is telling us in verse 33. Look at verse 33. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his who are prisoners. He doesn't despise them. He doesn't try and disassociate himself from them, even if they are prisoners or diseased or troubled or suffering, as if when God's people suffer, they were a part of some divine experiment of sorts that's really gone awry. They were made in the divine laboratory and it just didn't work out. And so God really wants no part of those people. No, the psalmist tells us that God listens to His people who suffer. He hears them. God hears you when you call out to Him. Therein lies the comfort for the heart and for the soul. A God who listens to His people. And then the psalmist says in verse 34, Let heaven and earth praise Him, the seas and everything that moves in them, For God will save Zion and build the cities of Judah that they may dwell there and possess it. The descendants of His servants will inherit it and those who love His name will dwell in it. Amid the worst circumstances for the writer, though his life may hang in the balance, it seems, though it would seem that he's been given more pain than he can endure, though he feels his very life ebbing away, He finds solace. He finds peace. He finds praise for God within Himself. Because God is listening and because God is going to build His kingdom. That's what verse 35 and 36 describe. They're verses that express the hope of God's final triumph. Zion in the Scriptures is the dwelling place of God among His people. The message here is that God will triumph for His people and they will be secure. Now, 
when you read this psalm, it's easy to see that the psalmist does not find resolution for his crisis in the short term. There's not an air here of, I will be vindicated, I will be healed, I will be lifted up, I, I will no longer suffer. There's nothing like that. It's a long psalm. You think he could have squeezed it in somewhere. The psalmist instead finds relief in the future as God will complete His saving work on His people's behalf. The psalmist is willing to endure whatever is necessary for the kingdom. He will be in pain. He will tell God about how serious it is. He will wonder where God is. And His only comfort one day will be that God will bring His kingdom about through it all. He will even offer His life if it's required of Him. And though He suffers terribly, He finds cause to praise because His heart is excited once again for a God who will save His people. Now this psalm is quoted some six times in the New Testament. Really in the Gospels it's six times, a couple other times by Paul. And Jesus uses this psalm to describe different points in his life and his disciples use it after his resurrection to understand Christ's life. And it surrounds Jesus' entire experience leading to the cross from his zeal for the temple as he overturns the money changers' tables to when he's persecuted by his enemies, to the vinegar wine given him on the cross, to being smitten by God and suffering at his hand, just as that message echoes in Psalm 69. Really, Psalm 69 resolves the life-suffering of Jesus Christ. There is comfort in a God who hears his people, and the coming of God's kingdom is worth it all. Whatever may be endured, Christ finds comfort in the coming of God's kingdom that He spent His life bringing about. That's His quotation of Psalm 69 as He understands the psalm. And that's the message of the Gospel. You can hear it in the words, right? In Matthew 6 that we read this morning. Jesus saying, Don't worry then about what you'll eat or what you'll drink or what you'll wear, but seek first His kingdom and His righteousness. To seek the kingdom is to desire above all to enter into it, to submit to it, to participate in spreading the news of the saving reign of God in Jesus Christ. Knowing that being a part of it and participating in the kingdom demands sacrifice, demands suffering. And in God's sovereignty, it may even cost our life. It certainly cost Jesus His life in God's sovereignty to bring about the kingdom. Jesus teaches in Matthew 6 that we are replacing life's pursuits and certainly even satisfying life's pains. And that's what the kingdom of God does in people. The kind of commitment that's required in this life to Christ and the cause of the gospel is what the psalmist shows us in Psalm 69. As Christ himself lives the psalm, really, years beyond the writer's original penning of it. But those words describe his life, just as they describe our lives. And the pain that the writer finds, he places himself somehow in God's 
greater glory and the greater eternal accomplishment of the establishment of the kingdom of God. And so too then, really, in the same way. Christ finds the answer for his suffering and pain in the greater glory of God as his sacrifice is used for the establishment of the Father's kingdom. For us then, the reader today, we are met in our hearts as life's pains mount at times and overwhelm us, and they do overwhelm us at times. We're met with the comfort of God's kingdom and the moment of finding our greatest place of pleasure and even high praise for God we can muster as we receive what God gives us in this life. I'm sure that every one of you feels pain. Probably some of you are in pain right now, emotional pain, physical pain, often relational pain, and you suffer in various and really incomparable ways with each other. And the God who has smitten you, He hears you. So the psalmist is telling us to all call out to Him, just as Jesus calls out to God. In honesty, with words that really might even echo the psalmist's words, because they express our hearts as well. And we find comfort in the message of God's presence in Christ and God's eternal kingdom set upon Him. And let such praise come from us then, that we become more concerned with His eternal kingdom than with our own comfort. That's where the psalmist finds resolution for his pain and his suffering. He is more concerned with God's kingdom than he is with his temporal discomfort, pain, and suffering in this life. And therein is the experience of all people who walk with God. And who know God. From the psalmist who writes this poem all the way to Christ who fulfills it, who really makes this psalm a living reality. God uses poetry to let His people feel and to give us a, a channel for those feelings. And at the same time, to let us find the answer for all that we experience in this life. The solution to the pain and suffering of this life as a part of the people of God, as believers in Jesus Christ, is not the simplicity of the Gospel. The solution is rather found in the complexity of the kingdom that the Gospel of Jesus Christ inaugurates and begins. The answer for our suffering is found in the complexity of the kingdom that Christ inaugurates. The psalmist suffers and says, I will trust God, the kingdom is coming. Christ suffers and says, I will trust God because you're bringing about the kingdom through me. And now we join in suffering in this life and say to God, God, we trust you. Thank you for letting us be a part of your kingdom. The complexity of the kingdom of God in Christ is big enough. It's strong enough. It's powerful enough to satisfy the searching soul that suffers. Don't be afraid to accuse God or question Him about your life's pain. The complexity of the kingdom of God can take on your suffering. That's what God has told His people in Psalm 69, and Christ reaffirms it for us in the Gospel. And now we're called to live it. Always looking forward then to the culmination 
of the kingdom, as we trust that God is using our lives, as we believe in what Christ has done, that our suffering will find its resolution in God's eternal kingdom. And for that, we praise Him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we are so grateful that You speak the language of our hearts, that You allow us to be open with You, that You allow us to be honest with You, that You gave us such literature that allows us to get emotional, that allows us to convey our lives to You as they are, that You let us speak freely that we use the poetic that You've given us, Father, in the Psalms to allow our hearts to cry out to You. We're so grateful that somehow in Your immense, eternal glory, You count us worthy to participate in the Kingdom. Give us hearts to endure as we wonder at times where You are, Father, give us praise that proclaims Your majesty as we await that final culmination of Your eternal kingdom in Christ Jesus. Amen.